Welcome to the Hardware Asylum Podcast. In this episode, we look at the benefits of delitting using Rocket Cool's Rocket 99, and we address some of the cooling deficiencies in our latest water cooling build. I'm your host, Dennis Garcia. With me today, I have Darren. Darren, do you know what delitting is? Delitting. That's like something to do with your hat, right? Yeah, that's taking your hat off, uh, especially when you go inside after a rainstorm. It's very patriotic, I'm told, too, but that can't be what you're talking about. No, this is more computer-oriented and kind of enthusiast in nature. Delitting. Oh, wait, no, I do know what delitting is. That's when you break your processor so that you can get better performance. Yes, that is exactly right. Totally is. Okay, yeah. I remember we talked about this in a couple of podcasts. Delitting is the act of removing the top off of your Intel CPU. You can't do these on AMDs. Well, you could back in the K62 era. Well, and if I recall way back in the slot A days, it made sense to take the processors apart also. But that was usually so that you could overclock it with an external device. But most of the time, there's no need to take apart your processor. So... No, well, believe it or not. So we go back... Go back to slot one, slot A days, right? Right. And it was a cartridge. You had the processor, uh, you know, the slot style processor. And then there was a cartridge that wrapped around it, had the heat sink and the little shrouds and all that. Oh, that just makes me feel old. Like you have to blow on it to get it to work. No, that was a was a different cartridge. Yeah, different cartridge. Well, it, but it's similar. But you would take those apart because the, the heat uh, sink was attached like a normal heat sink. You could replace that thermal compound and get better performance. Right. And actually, you could also increase your performance by adding um, heat fins or, or heat sinks directly to those chipsets. So I think I see where you're going with this. And as a refresher, there are Intel processors, if I recall correctly, that aren't very efficiently put together. Well, it depends on who you ask. Oh, now if we ask Intel, everything performs, of course, up to spec. But the reality is... These processors have a metal cover that separates the actual processor itself from the real world. And the reason for that, of course, is to protect them. Uh, it works a lot like a memory heat spreader, where it allows the heat to not concentrate so much on the die and then spread out across the, the surface area. Well, Dennis, all of that sounds like really good, useful stuff. So why would you want to take that lid or that cover, if you will, off of your processor? We've already said it, for better thermals, better control of the temperature. Going back, you know, we have the, the cartridge processors that had the thermal compound. They were very traditional. Later on, when Pentium 4 came out, they added the heat spreader. Before, you know, Pentium 3 didn't have it. It was just a naked die. And then we also have the Athlon XPs. So you would break the core if you put the heat sink on wrong. They put the heat spreader on there to protect the die and also to improve the thermals. But Intel would solder them directly on there. So the heat spreader was soldered directly to the die so that you had this perfect metal-to-metal -metal contact so you had great thermals. That persisted all the way into the Sandy Bridge days. We remember the 2600K. Yes. Awesome processor. Intel then released the talk to that, which was the Ivy Bridge. And everyone's complaining, oh my God, my processor is so hot. I need a better heat sink. What's going on? As it turns out, Intel changed the way that they assembled their processors and they're no longer soldering the chip to the heat spreader. Instead, they're using a TIM or thermal interface material to make that thermal connection between the chip and the heat spreader and just simply gluing it down to the top of the substrate. And that is where the deleting tool comes in. So we can 
knock the top off, replace that tim with something high quality like uh, a gelid thermal compound or some people use liquid metal, which is actually it's a really good conductor, but it doesn't work for Sub-Zero. Why wouldn't you want to put your heatsink directly onto it as opposed to putting the lid back on though? Believe it or not, Intel uses these little tabs on the side of the heat spreader to lock it down. So that way you don't apply pressure directly to the substrate, which is actually pretty weak to begin with. So you have it on the metal. The metal applies the even pressure around the substrate, keeps the pins in place because there's no pins. It's just little socket pads, right? Right. That's how the socket works. The important part, though, is that, for instance, I delitted a Haswell using a razor blade. I just kind of work it under each side and all the way around, and eventually it popped loose. I was able to do that because the substrate was pretty thick. On KB Lake and Skylake processors of the 1150X generation, the substrate was really super thin. So thin, in fact, that if you put the CPU in backwards and tried to lock it down, it would break the substrate and ruin the processor. Oh, that's definitely not good. All right, so talk me through how this tool works, and we'll have to get a video out there for these folks, although you can always check out our current video. The tools are very similar looking. I imagine the process is pretty similar. So I should mention the tools that we have in front, again, radio, so sorry about that. I will post some links to the video I posted on YouTube and about these deleting options in the show notes. These are two tools from Rocket Cool. We have the Rocket 88, which is for 1150X processors, including Coffee Lake now. And that's the star of our video. So definitely go check that out. Definitely check that out. And they sent me a new deleting tool for the 2066 Core X processors. And that makes sense that they would have different form factors. So you would need the specific tool. I will be posting a video on deleting the 2066 processor, the Core X, which you would think for a high-end desktop CPU that you pay $1,000 for, they would be obligated to solder them together. But uh, when they came out with the 2066, they started using the TIM in there and it thermals go nuts. I mean, you can't really overclock this thing beyond the turbo speed before it starts to overheat and throttling, believe it or not. Well, that's no good and an odd decision. And you're right. If you spend that much money, you would expect premium performance. But I suppose Intel's new push towards lower thermals and uh, more turbo clocking means that they don't probably think that you need it. Intel has always been against overclocking in general. I mean, that's why they started uh, locking the CPUs so you couldn't rebrand them. Some of that was for piracy. But let's get to the deleting tool. So I have this one open right now, and I have a 7900X here. Okay. You take the the deleting tool. It comes as two pieces. You take this apart. There is a little arrow in the corner. Matches the arrow on the processor. Nice design. Yeah, so you basically find the arrow, and you drop it in there like that. And then you attach the top. Now, the top has the little pusher. This is a metal piece right here. Basically, wind this all the way back. And this little pusher is what slides the top of the lid off. Oh, I see. So we're basically just breaking the bond that holds the two together, but not enough to get to the internal chipset itself. Very clever. Very clever. Well, believe it or not, uh, some of the early ways of delitting these, like a Haswell or even an Ivy Bridge, was to put it in a vise and hit it with a block of wood. Oh, my gosh. And, um, you know, that it worked, but it was thick enough that it didn't destroy itself. Well, with KB Lake, you can't do that. So While you're talking about this, I want to call attention to the quality of this product. I'm really pretty amazed at what you've got here because the primary components of this thing are milled out of, was that aluminum? No, no, this is a Derlin. Or oh. It's basically plastic. It's a machinable oh, plastic. Totally got that. So this is not like a, well, I mean, it could be 3D printed, but it's definitely a, a milled 
project. It's very lightweight and it's very precise. I mean, it's holding that thing with very little tolerance, which is what you'd expect. Everything lines up perfectly with these. It, the quality is off the chart, to be honest. Oh, yeah. I hate to think of how many processors gave their life so that he could get this design correct. Hopefully not many. The way this works, though, is um, in the top, it has an allowance for the heat spreader, and then the pusher basically pushes it across, but it won't go too far. So it will hit the wall here on the other side once it bombs out. By then, you'll hear this loud crack, which is an awesome part of the video, which I can link in the show notes. But I'm not going to delete this on the podcast, but I'm going to show you how it works. So Okay. And we'll save that for the video so you can see it live. So you basically put that on there. It comes with uh, some thumb screws. So lock it down. Which you screw that in there. And basically, when it's locked down, at the top, you can see the top of the heat spreader. Right. In the bottom, there's a little hole where you can see... The little resistors and stuff. Can't get that wrong. Okay. They include a, an Allen key. So you basically run this in until it stops, and then you take your Allen key and crank, crank, and then snap. And then basically that pulls it apart. You back that off. You remove the thumb screws or knurled nut or knurled screws, or I don't know what you want to call them. Using your fingers to move them. Absolutely. Pull that off. And at this point, the two pieces are separate. You can remove the heat spreader itself, and they include a, a cuticle cleaner. Nice. Uh, that uh, works great at removing the glue from the CPU. You can use some rubbing alcohol to remove all the tim. And then they included a relitting tool. And this is a little plastic guide that goes over top of the, the deleting tool, the base of it, locks into place, and it self-centers the lid. Very nice. This other little tool here that goes on top of it that uh, I think it goes this way, actually. And basically you run the, your thumb screws into this to lock it down, and then they have this larger plastic screw nut thingy that goes in the middle. So when you put your, um, I use silicone, uh, the little black silicone like for cars and stuff, gasket maker, if you will. You dab that on there, you put this on, you crank it down with the relitting tool, and you leave it overnight. Basically, that applies pressure to the lid to allow the glue to set. You come back in 12, 24 hours, you can remove it, and... It's a perfectly working CPU. I like it. With incredibly improved thermal processing of its heat, at least. So I'm intrigued as to, you know, what would it cost to do this process? I mean, is it a worthwhile investment? What's what's our return on this? In terms of performance, it will drop it down about 10 degrees centigrade. That's what I saw on the uh, KB Lake that I overclocked with the Skylake, uh, not Skylake, but the the Core X processors, it will probably be about the same. So it'll be about 10, 15 degrees. That's a pretty good investment, though. So what, what would be like a, a net increase in performance, just like a, a ballpark? Ballpark, you should probably get another two to 300 megahertz out of it. It's The CPU itself is going to be somewhat limited in terms of overclock because of the quality of the silicon itself. But the benefit really is that you have more efficient thermal transfer so the cpu won't be as hot it'll in theory last longer it will also not ramp up your pwm fans as much because the temperature at the die is less so it's not going to have to use as much fan to well artificially use as much fan because you're not getting as much heat out of there well and reduced temperature not only gives you increased performance but lengthens the life of your product too so if you are going to hold on to your processor for a long time that's a that's a potential reason to invest in this as well. Mm-hmm. So I like it. I think uh, it's safe to say as an enthusiast, this is something that you should probably take an interest in. And this 
is definitely one of those niche tools that you can add to your overclocking toolbox. So check out that video and check out Rocket's Delitting Tools to get that extra edge out of your processor performance. Dennis, I want to take a little bit of time on this podcast to give folks an update on our View 31 RGB project build. You're really proud of that computer, aren't you? I am, and I think that it's fun. I, I really think that I like to go out and see what people are doing to upgrading and the whys and the whens and hows. So let's give folks an update. We took the View 31 RGB build in its beautiful pearl Porsche white to the Boise Land 6.0 LAN party, which is part of our local budgeting land scene. Yes. And we also gave away some stuff, a title sponsor for three shows in a row now. Absolutely. So folks, if you're anywhere near Boise, Idaho, I'd encourage you to come check us out at the Boise land, which is also involved in Tree Fort, Hack Fort. So some cool stuff that you can check out there, but I digress. So we took the View 31 in an attempt to show off our latest build and let people see what we'd been up to with that PC. There was lots of lots of oogly eyes on that machine. Absolutely. It was, it was a great, great show. A very cool machine to show off, but primarily because of all of the lighting. This time we went crazy with the RGB. But again, I digress because we built this machine primarily to do gaming on. So I participated in some tournaments at the Boise Land 6.0. And we discovered as we were pushing this machine for two and a half days straight that it wasn't performing as well as we'd hoped, Dennis. No. Um, it got hot. It did. In fact, the temperature got higher than we anticipated. So we... Like like in the 50s, and that's a lot for a, a loop. It is. And in fact, we've got, as you know, some high-end components. And this is a lot of the parts that we used in the previous Orange build, which performed very well. It was flawless. So we decided to take that build back to the lab and take it back to the drawing board. And like all good builds, the second we get that puppy under the knife, what do we do? Upgrade. We start looking at what we can change because... When you're going to build hardline, if you're going to take that thing apart, then you might as well take a look at what you can do different or better. So the first thing I wanted to do was replace the CPU cooler. Now, we had a Thermaltake unit in there that was really pretty. It lit up. But I wanted to get one that would match that vertical video card block, which was done in nickel and plexi. And that's, of course, an EK water block um, that is really one of the highlights of that build. So when you go and check out the build logs for that thing, you'll see that it's vertically mounted against the window. So very, very visible. Yeah, especially designed for your 1070 Gamer X from MSI. So what we were looking for was a matching block from EK. So we went out and found a matching nickel and plexi block from EK called the EK Supremacy Evo X99 in nickel. There is no doubt that EK makes some of the best water blocks out there and also some of the most attractive. So if you're out looking at water blocks, uh, I would recommend you check them out. And I should point out that they also make some limited edition ones that are even prettier with RGB and custom graphics and the whole nine yards. But we wanted, in this case, to not distract. So we bought the standard with the plexi top so that that plexi would show off our beautiful bright red liquid. The C1000 from Thermaltake. While we're in there, we also noticed that the light, the RGB light that we had on our flow indicator, which was a generic uh, that I'd gotten from Taiwan at some point, I think. Well, you cut it off at of eBay, I believe. It was just a generic spinner and a little square piece of plexi and a little 
three fin spinner thing in there and it it was pretty cool really because it had an, an led light on it yeah and it also came with a thermal probe and a little thermal um, indicator which i thought was probably the coolest thing ever because that way we could monitor what the temperatures were doing and also uh, get an idea if the water was actually flowing. Still like it and may eventually try to do it again. But we thought since we were going back to the drawing board that we would upgrade to one that was a little bit larger and easier to see the spinner. So we went out back to eBay and found a water flow meter from a company called Barrow, B-A-R-R-O-W, uh, that we thought looked really attractive. Now it also has RGB, but it did not have a temperature probe. But we figured we could probably salvage that probe or work it out with the onboard flow probe. But anyway, we ordered one of these things sight unseen based on just some of the feedback from China. And it arrived actually relatively quickly. It turns out that Borrow is a company that makes multiple different styles of this. Basically just different color and lighting choices. But we chose one that had an RGB LED control in it so that we could hook it to our lighting system. However, it didn't work out that way. Well, it turns out that your motherboard doesn't have an RGB controller on board, and the one that you are using to control the lights comes off of the sound card. It's basically a a standard four-pin RGB, but we just have to route it into the back, and then we can light it up however which way we want. So, of course, we'll link to this thing because it turned out to be kind of a bad boy. Once we figure out how to control that lights, I think it's going to be very impressive. And as Dennis pointed out, we only lost the temperature probe. But the reason we ended up replacing it really was because we discovered the LED light on our original generic product uh, was shorting out. So the light would not stay on unless you wiggled the wires. And we made an attempt to repair this thing with some soldering, and it just was so fragile it didn't stick. Yeah, uh, you know, it was cheap. So we figured, hey, we're going to replace the spinner, so let's take a look at the plumbing and see how we can maybe route the hard piping in this system to make it a little more efficient or a little bit stronger because this case gets moved so frequently. So Dennis, what did we end up doing with the piping? The way that we had the loop before, the spinner was on the vertical that went from the the output on the pump res directly into the radiator because we go pump res, radiator, radiator to CPU, CPU to GPU, and then back to the pump res. Right. And I put the spinner on the, the vertical pipe that went from the outlet of the pump res, which is at the bottom, to the top of the radiator, which was front-mounted. Now, that made it very visible, and it was nice that it filled a section of the case that's generally pretty open. Now, that also drew attention to the spinner because of the RGB light, but otherwise had no additional advantages. No, not, not at all. The disadvantage was that it broke that vertical pipe, which really needed to be more structural. So it was very weak. It, we couldn't ever get it tight to the point where it wouldn't move. Now, that was our longest run in the original build, and it also had the disadvantage of having more bends in it than any of the rest of ours. So it became sort of a single point of failure. So we found that after moving, it would occasionally have a slow leak to it that we'd have to go back in and tighten up those things basically every time we moved it. And we're talking about the compression fittings. Uh, We replaced that with a single solid run. Now, we still have the same amount of bends in it. So we've got one, two, three 90-degree bends. But we removed that break in the middle, and we relocated that spinner by putting that new borrow spinner in our top run. 
basically is on the return coming off of the GPU back into the top of the pump res, which is that Thermaltake PR22. Now this also put that up kind of up in an area that is a little more congested above the memory, but it moves it up to the top where it's a little bit more visible. So it's larger, more visible, much easier to see this thing spinning, and that will be even better when we get the lighting in. So maybe I've given up my desire to have some RGB memory, at least for the short run. Well, you know, there's more builds. <laughs> there are definitely more opportunities to add lighting to this case, which is what the theme is, of course. And that's going to maybe require a new motherboard next time we touch this thing. Oh, yeah, definitely. We were able to get the, the EK water block onto the CPU just fine. I had to redo some of the tubes. Anytime you make a change inside of a hardline system, you're going to have to rebend tubes, which is uh, unfortunate. Now, you had asked about the thermal probe. Yes. And I didn't... I don't think I actually told you where I put it. No, I sure have no idea where it went. Now, we've got pictures of this thing, and of course, we'll link to them, and we should have more content on this case in the build as it progresses. Yeah, so with the, the Thermaltake radiator that we're using, it comes with inlet ports at the top, but those inlet ports are on both sides. So you could actually have a pass-through radiator, so you can run these in series, well, in parallel, by just kind of linking them together at the very top. There's a drain at the very bottom, which is something that... We opened the case up so that we can actually get to that drain now. So we can drain the radiator independent of draining the entire loop, which is coming off of the pump res at the very front. Yeah, and that was absolutely a great addition that we didn't think of initially. One of the disadvantages of the way that we built the system is the front-mounted radiator and the vertical-mounted uh, uh, cooler that's on the graphics card made it very difficult to fully drain and flush this system. Yeah, any low spot that you have in your loop will collect water. That's why you always want to try to orient the tubes so that they're always going down. They don't have any gravity-style loops in them. So they're always going to be up loops and not down loops. And if you don't do that, you end up playing an interesting game of Twister every time you try to drain this thing. Yeah, and, you know, these cases are heavy. So uh, what I was able to do, though, was I took your thermal probe from before and attached it to the top of the outlet on the radiator on the opposite side that is in the front bezel. Oh, interesting. Well, that worked out really good, but I know that you also did some additional cutting, so I think we should talk about that too, because we didn't just cut a drain line so that you could drain that radiator much like you'd drain your car. We also did some additional cuts, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, that is true. So one thing that we noticed at the Boise Land was that this system was running hotter than expected, and there was two reasons for that. One of them was the fans that we were using, which we can talk about in a moment, and the other one was that the very front of the View 31 it will allow you to put 140 millimeter fans, 280 millimeter radiators, but it's really the openings are designed for 120s. When you put your 140 millimeter fan in there, half of the fan is blocked by the metal of the case. Now keep in mind that we have already replaced the front bezel on this thing, so we could improve airflow that way. Mm -hmm. And in this case, it, we just needed to take uh, the Dremel tool and cut out the parts that were being blocked in the fan. And if you Look in the build log on Hardware Asylum. You'll, if you look at the front of the case, you'll see the fans on there, and you'll actually see the vertical pieces of metal that are blocking the airflow. Now, every little bit makes a difference, but especially when these fans are designed specifically to create tunnels of air, if you will, that are shaped specifically to push through that fan. And the alternative was to try to put a push-full system together that would have fans on both sides, but we just didn't want to crowd the inside of the radiator. No, and I spent the, the time and effort to go and take this case apart and paint it. I didn't 
take the effort to go and line up where we we're going to put the radiator and make sure that the fans hit and cut out that opening before we painted it. So it was a retrofit. We had to go and pull the um, almost the whole system apart to take the Dremel and actually remove those chunks of metal. Now, I have to point out that this is something that we frequently recommend to people when they're making builds, even with soft tube. And that is that as much as it pains you because it takes so much longer to do, you really should get all your components and rough out where they're going to be in the system so that you can figure out what your lines are going to do, but also so you can look for things like this blockage. Because we were undecided about what components we were going to use when we painted the case, that forced us to come back after the fact and say, okay, well, we are going to put the radiator here after all. What do we need to do? Yeah, exactly. You know, when you're building a custom machine like this, the View 31, the first time we put it together, it was assembled five times before we actually say, hey, that's how we want to actually do this. So it's a long process. And that doesn't even count the mini tubes that we had to create every time we put this thing together to make sure that we get a good clean seal and the most efficient tubing layout that we can. Yeah, and it also has to look good. So that brings us to the final mod that we did for the View 31, and it pertains to the fans. Now, I thought we had used those same ring fans before. Those are those are some of my favorites because they're so pretty. Yeah, yeah we used those fans before, and the ones that I got were in a 5-pack, and they're 140 millimeter, as I mentioned, and RGB, and they have a central controller that the fans all plug into. Now, that controller, as with all RGB fans, they have some software that runs the lights, but the fans themselves, they're controlled by the software as well, unlike some of the traditional fans that you would plug into the motherboard. Right. What we found at the LAN party was that, one, you were not running the Thermaltake software. I know, I know. And that was just an oversight, honestly. The the lights themselves go into kind of a default mode. So they were actually working. They would kind of spin around. But the fans were in the low speed mode. So there wasn't a lot of air moving through. Now, these are high compression fans, right? So these are high performers when they're working correctly. Yeah, they're high static fans. And Thank that, you. And <laughs> that is from primarily the blade design. So it's very tight thin blades. So there's multiple blades on there. And that allows for more, well, in a sense, less back pressure off the fan and more pressure through whatever it's trying to get through. So they're great for radiators, not necessarily great for venting cases, but when you have five of them, you might as well put them all in the case, right? So what I discovered was that when the fans are in default mode, in low speed mode, they don't actually cool your radiator very well. And I wanted to prevent that from happening again. Normally, you would have the software installed so you can control what the lights do and you can control the fans based off of temperature sensors within the system. It has some software to go out and say, hey, is this CPU working? Hey, is the video card working? Stuff like that. But I wanted them to be controlled more traditionally off of the motherboard. And it turns out if you take the fan apart, which it's on a maglev, so there's no pin in the back, so you can pop them apart to clean them. Nice. Nice pro tip, by the way. When you pull that out, you can also remove the motor. And there's four wires coming off of that. Those four wires are the PWM control to the fan motor itself. Run those wires out of the sleeving, put a new fan tail on it, plug it into the motherboard. We have fans controlled by the motherboard, and we have RGB lights controlled by the controller, and everybody's happy. Like the best of both worlds. Exactly. So, of course, all this turned out very pretty, and I'm really proud of how it looked because that's what you want from an RGB build. But ultimately, the reason behind any mod, especially when we're doing this much work with tubing and and water cooling in general, is performance. So where do we end up, Dennis? Much better. So what does much better mean? We talked about performances reaching up into the 50s, but we did some pretty extensive testing on this build. Yeah, we did. So with the original build that we took to the Boise Land 6.0, I was noticing temperatures up in the 50s. And that was partially because 
one, we were gaming for like three to four hours and uh, you were playing some pretty kick-ass titles like Battlefield 1 and whatnot. Lots of load on the CPU, lots of load on the GPU and not much airflow through the radiator to keep it cool. Well, when we rebuilt the system, I put it on the bench and I was running Fire Strike in a loop for over an hour and it never got above 43. And in fact, we have been using this build now for oh, several weeks now in its native environment, and the temperature rarely gets above mid-30s. Which is a testament to, one, removing a, more heat from the CPU via a more efficient CPU block, and it also uh, it changed the back pressure with uh, the switch from the Thermaltake cooler to the EK Evo cooler. And that's something that you have to remember when you're putting together a cooling loop in general, is that... The pump is more efficient when you have less back pressure, but the pressure is also what is transferring heat from the CPU to the water. So you have to have a good balance there. And if you have products from the same company, you can be assured that it's going to give you the same performance. Absolutely. So if nothing else, not only does your machine need to perform, but it's nice when it looks good too. So selecting the right products up front and getting a good match sometimes isn't enough. You need to do the research into how you're going to make that build more efficient and where your soft spots are. And in this case, we discovered that we just need to be more efficient with the fans primarily. And we use that as an excuse to upgrade the whole system, improving our performance overall. All things we could have done up front if we had uh, chosen some different components and done a little more initial testing. Now everything's working great. System looks fantastic, and I'd encourage you to check out our build log. Take a look at what we did, and of course, chime in if you have any questions or comments on how we put together our loop. For more information on the topics discussed in this podcast, please consult our show notes on hardwareasylum.com. Stay up to date on the latest at Hardware Asylum by subscribing to our RSS. Follow us on Twitter or like us on Facebook. This has been a Ninja Lane production, copyright 2017. Thanks for listening.